will be his 37th Grand Prix win and Ayrton Senna, to the delirious delight of his countrymen, wins in Brazil in his own time. So slows right down. This is the best thing that could possibly have happened for Grand Prix racing and Senna's looking for that Brazilian flag which is always ready for... Ayrton Senna winning the Brazilian Grand Prix in 1993. Shortly, we're going to hear a little bit about why one of the things that can be learned from the brilliance of the Brazilian Formula One driver was his understanding of risk. One FTSE 100 chief executive thinks a lot more needs to be done to help leaders understand risk. Indeed, he thinks a lot more needs to be done to help leaders understand how to run an organisation. So much so, he's written a book about it. I'm Graham Ruddick, and this is Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at business stories from the past. In this episode, we speak to André Lacroix, Chief Executive of FTSE 100 company Intertech. Intertech tests the quality of products, and Lacroix has been Chief Executive since 2015, making him one of the longest-serving Chief Executives in the FTSE 100. Before that, he was the boss of FTSE 250 car dealer Inchcape for a decade. He's also run Disneyland Paris, was at Burger King, and spent eight years in the sales and marketing team at PepsiCo. Given his varied experiences, he's decided to do something pretty rare for the serving chief executive of a big company. Publish a book about what he has learned about leadership. It's called Leadership with Soul. I mean, if you really step back and think about it, leadership has not been researched a lot around the world. There are lots of books on, on leadership. It's either written by professors, you know, consultants, people who don't have the real experience, but have the real perspective, if I can say it like this. And it's interesting. And then you've got acting leaders like me or retiring leaders that basically say, you know, I need to tell the world what I've done. But what I do, they basically take certain aspects of leadership and call it arrogance or call it just, uh, you know, Andre's viewpoint. Before I put this leadership model together, I read lots of books on leadership and management, but I could never find an end-to-end systemic model that was saying to any leader, if you want to lead a business from A to B, these are the key drivers of you know, positive leadership or what I call good leadership. And this is how you get organized. And, and what I'm trying to do is, is use my practical experience uh, and combine that with, you know, what I call cutting edge thinking in terms of where leadership is all about and, and to help people stop and think with a very, very um, different approach that my leadership approach is very humanist at, at its heart, right? That's why I wanted to become a surgeon. But... It's about you know, putting people at the heart of your growth strategies to deliver results in the short, medium, and long term for all stakeholders. And it's interesting that the dean of my uh, business school in Paris, USCP, which is now a big uh, business school, say this is exactly what we don't have in terms of academic content, right? Because this is not a, an area that has been properly researched and documented. And that's why you know, th- there is an interest in, in the book. At the start of his book, André Lacroix writes that just about every major crisis in the 21st century can be traced back to a failure of leadership, a failure to understand 
and mitigate risk. This includes 9-11 and aviation safety, the financial crisis and debt, and COVID-19 and preparing, or not, for a global pandemic. Leaders need to learn, adapt and improve, he writes. And that is why they need help. And that is why he felt he should write a book about his experiences. When there is a crisis inside a company or within a country or within an ecosystem being local, regional or global, there are reasons for that, right? And leaders need to be able to both manage the opportunity as well as manage the risks. And risk management is not something that is ingrained in the way organizations, public and, and non-public, are, are, are really you know, setting up the, the, the agenda. And if you just take you know, the financial crisis, for instance, that uh, we all know so well, I mean, I remember being an auditor for Estan Young at the beginning of my career in West Africa, where we got a, a mission to basically audit the risk of one of the major national banks in one of the Western countries. And the lack of risk-based assessments of your creditors was at the heart of the issue. Now, if you look at what happened in 2009, it's exactly that, right? The risk was not properly assessed. And that's a learning, right? And it's a failure of leadership at the end from, from, from the banks, right? They should have spent more time on their risk. I mean, I can take, you know, COVID, for instance. I mean, the reason why COVID spread the way it spread around the world is because the global health institutions, right, are not coordinated, are not connected. And, and, and I, I lived it firsthand. I mean, I was in, in Shanghai and in Guangzhou at the end of January 2020, just before they all went in Chinese New Year for their holidays. And I can tell you that nobody was talking about what was happening in Wuhan. And, and when the news obviously became public, people start, you know, worrying. But the lack of connectivity between all institutions, right, China, the rest of the world, has made COVID very, very, very difficult. And every country uh, took the, their own approach. And it has created this, you know, uncontrollable, you know, situation that we all have been through. And, and, and to me, the lack of leadership here is the institutions running the world might not be appropriate for the world we are in today, right? At the end of the day, it's leadership, right? It's how the political leaders, the G20 leaders, you know, think about protecting society by working together on the areas that matter. Now, I'm pretty sure that in a lot of governments' risk footprint, in a lot of pharma footprints, global pandemic was identified in their risk register. But was it identified as high as it should have been within all the global institutions? No. The way I talk about risk uh, internally is that for a lot of operators, leaders, and, and, and organizations, risk management is seen as a negative aspect of running a business, right? P people want to grow. People want you know, to make a difference. And the issue with risk is that people don't understand the connection between proper risk management and proper growth management. And here is a very you know, simple story. I'm a big fan of Formula One. You know, I'm passionate about cars. My favorite driver was Alton Senna, and, and, and I met him when I was uh, in the Formula One circuit because when I was at Pepsi, we were involved with 7-Up with the Benetton team, and he was winning every single race better than my you know, French fellow uh, driver, uh, uh, Alain Prost. And then one day I went to the McLaren factory here, and I met Alton's personal engineer. And I said to him, but what was his secret? He says, Andre, 
in every single race, Arton was the most risk-aware driver. He was the most challenging with the authorities in terms of creating the right safety you know, protocol for every race. And because he was so risk-aware, he could take more risks than his competitors and drive faster. And, and that's a metaphor I use a lot internally because we need to make risk management something that is positive. Being risk-aware means that you're risk-prepared. And if you risk-prepare, you can take more risk because you have confidence in your team that you've mitigated some of the risk ahead. And, and that needs to change in corporations. I mean, we at Intertech uh, spend time on risk at every single board meeting. We have put in place one of the world-leading integrated controlling compliance approach because I'm convinced if you risk-prepare, you can grow faster. And that change of perspective needs to happen in every single organization, public and private, public, private, government, and all the global institutions, because that's what's lacking you know, in the world. If I take what we do today at Intertech, we are in the quality, safety, sustainability space, right? I can assure you that every single product recall scandal is due to a lack of rigor in the processes and data management and leadership on how you know to make a difference in your own value chain. I can take any scandal that uh, you know we've seen recently and, and demonstrate it. And this is leadership because at the end of the day, if you don't put in place the right measurements and processes to mitigate the risk inside your value chain, you're going to have a problem. And companies need to spend more time on that. And 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 the bigger point here is that corporations, you know, I spend a lot of time focusing on growth over the last you know, two or three decades. And my view, this is what I, what, I, what I say in the book, that companies are run better today than were ever before, but I still believe that they're over-managed and, and under-led, and leaders need to spend time on the growth drivers and the risk uh, mitigation plans or, or enablers, because otherwise you don't create sustainable performance, which is essentially what everybody wants, right? You've touched on a couple of short-term risks there, but there's also a big long-term risk which you identify in the book, and that is the disengagement of the workforce. How big a risk and challenge is that for businesses today, and how much is, is it down to leadership to resolve it? I mean, that's the big elephant in the corporate world. Um, Gallup, which is the authority in terms of measuring engagements across thousands of companies around the world, they've got the best database. It's a very well you know, calibrated approach with their 12 questions. And only 20% of the workforce is engaged, which means you've got 2.8 billion employees every single day you know, going to the office to do a job, but not really being passionate, understanding the meaning of what they do, and, and, and truly putting their discretionary efforts to maximize the, the, the performance of the company. And in my sense, this is all about leadership. And that's why I believe that you know, uh, the world needs good leadership. And leadership is about, you know, delivering great results with your people for all your stakeholders. And I believe that putting people at the heart of your growth strategy is essential to do so. And a lot of people, you know, get confused as well. You know, the shareholders want short-term results and, and the employees want to make the workplace better. Well, shareholders and employees want the same. They want the workplace to be a better place for everyone, including delivering you know, good results on a sustainable basis, right? And this is why I think it's time for, for leaders to listen to the humanist side and put people at the heart of their growth strategy and day-to-day -day actions. Because at the end of the day, this is how you will get uh, sustainable performance. And, and, and this level of engagement, 20%, is scary. 
And to me, what it means is that companies are not unleashing their full potential. And, and the way to unleash your full potential is having truly engaged colleagues at every single part in your organization. Easier said than done, but that's the direction of travel. That's why we all need to work on leadership and making sure that when we lead, we are clear about the what. Are, he, are we doing the right things to deliver the strategy and the results? But the how, you know, how are all people feeling? Are they truly energized? And, and if you cannot say yes and yes to those <coughs> questions every single day, as a leader, you have a problem. When he was at Disneyland Paris, one of the ways that André Lacroix tried to engage with staff was by asking them to help draw up a new strategy. This was a process that involved speaking to thousands of workers. Essentially, engagement in high-performing organisations starts with involving people when you design the strategy, right? And obviously, it was 12,000 cast members in one location, 1,000 leaders inside that business. And it was a very difficult, you know, turnaround. It was public. You know, when I arrived, we made a press release saying we have issues with our bank governance. We need to restructure investing growth. If you run Euro Disney in, in Paris, it's like running, you know, uh, HSBC here. You're in the press all the time. Whatever I was saying internally was public. Whatever I said externally, obviously, was immediately internally. So I had no choice but being honest, which is the, always the best way with the organization. I said, look, this is a situation. There's nothing we can do, but we cannot change the past. What we can't do is make the future better. But I want you to help me get there. And I took uh, the first step with a thousand uh, managers and asked them one question. If you had one thing that you would want me to change between now and 12 months from now, what would it be? And you do, you know, one question to a thousand people, you got a distribution of point of views. And in a nanosecond, I didn't need a consulting firm or market switches. I had the diagnosis of the company. There were quite a few things that had to, to be changed. And then we had this brilliant idea over dinner with my teams and said, you know what? We have a unique workforce. Uh, cast members at Disneyland Paris are passionate. They love the brand. They love having families come and, and spend you know, quality time and dream away from, from their day-to-day -day reality. And this is really rare. What if we organize you know, roundtables, which we call summer camps, where we ask the cast members who want to contribute to come and talk to us? We had half of the workforce said, we want to come and help. It was a huge you know, boost of energy. Obviously, we had to organize the roundtables with our training department. And importantly, we had to follow up. But what was really amazing is that all the ideas we had to reinvest in the business and grow, short-term, medium and long-term, all came from these discussions internally. And then the rest was easy because we said we're going to do something together. I've negotiated a, a new financing uh, plan with the banks and the shareholders. We've got clear ideas and this is how we're going to do it. And, 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 and it was very, very successful. You've got to engage the workforce when you design the strategy because this is what being meaningful means. I mean, you want your colleagues to own the actions, but as well as the direction of travel and the strategy. I wanted to ask you about engagement with customers as well, because there's a really interesting anecdote you give in the book about emailing airline chief executives when you weren't happy with the service. But you said that you, you emailed the CEO because you would want to be emailed as a CEO and you would deal with it in a, in a way. And on one of the occasions, you got no reply. The other occasion, you got a reply from customer service. Could you just talk about why 
First of all, is it genuinely possible? You give the example of Michael Eisner at Disney did look at every email he got from customers. Is is it realistic that CEOs look at the messages they get from customers? And, and why is it so important? Look, the, the, the main point is that customer complaints or claims is the best source of customer research. Why? One of your customer takes the time to write to you and say, I went to your uh, restaurant, I went into your grocery shop, or I used your service online, and I'm not happy. So just that, you have to be respectful to that, right? It's it's basic, right? Respect from my perspective. And the reality is that a lot of companies have customer claims department or customer care departments, but don't understand the power of the data there. I'll come back to, to the main point. But if you look at what we do at Intertech, we use NPS, that promoter's calls. We do close to 6,000 interviews a month. We are one of the companies doing the highest number of customer interviews in the world. The data is not only the score, but is the answer we get on every single questionnaire. And this data is huge. So if I want to basically research sustainability, I just go into the database and say, this is my customers are saying on sustainability, right? So this is a powerful source of insight, which organizations don't leverage enough, in my view. Now, is it realistic for every CEO to read every single email? No. The point is, as a CEO, you need to make sure there is a clear process that gives you uh, the insight on what's not uh, happening right, but certainly what's giving your leaders, your managers, the data to do something about it. Now, the way Michael was doing it, I learned a lot from him. It was very, very you know, uh, specific, you know. In this uh, Santa Fe room, KitKat bar was not there and the kid was not happy. What are we doing about it? And look, from these very specific examples, you learn a lot because if you have customer service processes, right, end to hand, you have to accept that not every process is going to be perfect, nor fully executed. And therefore, you have to be open to do something about it if something is wrong. And, you know, you can reinvent your processes. So I don't expect every CEO to read every single customer complaint. I expect every CEO to make sure the organization has the data at their fingertips to do something when there is a customer complaint because your customers is taking the time to write to you and this is only the minimum you should do then, then look at it and do something about it. André Lacroix says he's learned about leadership from colleagues such as Michael Eisner who was boss of Disney while he ran Disneyland Paris. But he's also learned from organizations outside the ones he works for. This includes learning from Toyota while he was boss of Inchcape, the car dealer. Incredible organization. I've learned so much from the meticulous quality planning that Toyota goes in everything they do. I visit the factories in, in lots of my you know, industries I will remember the Lexus factory in South Japan. I visited that day where everything was very, 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 you know, uh, you know, brilliant in terms of execution. And I always ask people, what are the leading indicators that you use to manage your business? Because that's really how you look at potential opportunities or issues. And I ask the plant managers, you know, what's the main leading indicators that you look at? Because everything is perfect. Says, I look at decibels. What do you mean? Well, the amount of decibels on the shop floor tells me if the process are running well or not. I've never seen anything like this. I mean, the, the time I spent with the Toyota engineers talking about electrical vehicles versus hybrid technology. I mean, nights getting the arguments back and forth. 
and, and there is a reason I'm not going to share it today because it's, it's, it's proprietary information. There is a reason why Toyota decided to invest in hybrid technology versus EV. It was well thought through and, and I think, you know, uh, they, they, they did a good job. So, no, I mean, Toyota is just, uh, I mean, just to give you an, another example, I used to go to their headquarters several times a year to meet with, you know, Accio and, 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 and the chairman and, and all the executives. And of course, we went into a big crisis. We are talking in 2009. Toyota, one of the most powerful organizations in the world, very, very profitable. You go to their pristine headquarters and ask the questions, I noticed there is only one elevator. Yes, uh, we want to save on electricity. Running one elevator at the headquarters in 2009 to, to show to their colleagues that you know the, the, it was important to save on every opportunity without damaging the customer experience because it didn't matter if I had you know the choice between elevators, I was going to go up anyhow. You also talk about learning from things like sport. I mean, cycling comes up a lot and Formula One as well. Is there a lot that business leaders can learn from sport and sportsmen? No question. No question. Number one, it's a team. I'm a sailor, so I do a lot of uh, selling with, with, with our teams. And everybody has got a role. It's just not only the skipper or the, 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 the Formula One driver, right? The other thing is data management. If you look at the way Formula One has taken data management, the science-based approach is just incredible. And, you know, never stopping reinventing yourself. I mean, it doesn't matter how good you are, you know there will always be someone beating you if you don't progress, right? This this constant pursuit of perfection, reinventing yourself to the next level is really ingrained in what sport is because you know that when there is a record, there is somebody else out there to beat you. So the only way to stay number one is to beat yourself, right? And and that's you know why I believe in, in reinvention because you should never stand still and you should always, always celebrate, recognize, say thank you, you know, reward people, but always say, you know what, if we don't reinvent ourselves, somebody will do it for us. So let's reinvent ourselves to stay on top of the game. When he was growing up at school in France, André Lacroix says he wanted to be a surgeon. But that ambition changed almost overnight after he went to a business conference and heard a speech from a chief executive. My family situation, my, my father had a business. Uh, we lived in the south of France. They never pushed me at school. They let me, you know, do what I had to do to be first or second in class. And they knew that, you know, I was a bit independent. So they were never going to influence my choice. So I wanted to be a doctor till that night when I met people from different backgrounds, different professions. And I was very inspired by this CEO of a medium and small size companies in the region where we lived. And I realized that what he was doing was quite exciting, which was achieving great things through people. Now, I didn't phrase it like this at the time, but that was my you know, gut reaction. And there was also an, another side to me being responsible and independent. Being a surgeon meant 13 years of study in France. And, and I'm not sure I had the patience to do that. Also, I'm not sure I wanted my parents to go through the financial efforts to, to do so. So I woke up in the morning and I, and I said to myself, you know, I've got some news for you, uh, dad and, and mom. Uh, I'm going to go into business. And my dad was super, super excited, of course. And the rest is history. And, and, uh, and it's only later when Gretel asked me the, the question that I reconciled the two, that uh, today I'm a happy CEO because I do great things to take people's life forward, right? And, and help people live a better life, being either my customers, but also my, my employees. And that's very rewarding as, as a CEO. Right from the start, did you want to be a CEO when you went into business? And, and if so, how did you go about making sure you did become CEO eventually? 
and and don't ask me where it's coming from because I don't know. I, I remember, you know, uh, these days when I was preparing, you know, to enter the, the the business school, it was hard work, and I had to spend a lot of you know, studying time, like like you do at this at this age. And I knew I wanted to make a difference. I had lots of intrinsic energy in me. And when I got into in, into the business school, I knew that I wanted to become a, a, a CEO and, and lead businesses. And, and and the reason why I decided to major in marketing and strategy because I thought it was the fastest way to get there. I don't know where this is coming from. You know, take it as a willingness to make a difference, being responsible, wanting to change the world, having an impact, feeling good about making uh, the world better. Maybe all of that, but it was it was in me. And I've asked my parents, and I still don't know where it's coming from. And, and certainly, it's not coming because my parents pushed me. Because they were, like, it's just uh, maybe now that you ask the questions, maybe it came through sports. I mean, a lot. I did a lot of competition, and I always wanted to be the best. And working hard at winning the next selling race or the next, you know, tennis game. I also did some competition skiing. Maybe that's where it's coming from. Uh, I'm very competitive, but competitive with my own. Performance, right? This is playing sport when you were younger. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, It's interesting, despite the fact you set out wanting to become a a CEO and a leader, you don't think leaders are born, you think they're made. Of course. I think, I mean, uh, I'm talking about accomplished leaders, leaders that understand how to lead. You're not born, you've got to learn your way. Uh, You've got to work hard at it. You've got to be open, you've got to be curious. You got to invest time, as we said earlier. You got to be determined to improve yourself and never stop reinventing yourself because. There is no one, you know, born as, as, as an effective leader. It, it's, it's hard work and experience matters here, right? Uh, the more you work at it, the better you are at it. What's it like being the CEO of a FTSE company today? Do you, do you find your time getting taken up more and more by regulatory issues or, or media or finance? I mean, do you find that it's frustrating? Not at all. I think my time is around, you know, 50% uh, working with, with the businesses in the various uh, jurisdiction, traveling quite a bit. 25% about planning with, with, with the business, reviewing, and 25% what I call stakeholders management, which is communicating with shareholders and, and all other, you know, uh, stakeholders that are important. But at the end of the day, you know, in every ecosystem, you've got to have a governance. And in the case of a public company in, in the UK, I think the governance of public companies here in this country is one of the best that I've seen around the world. It can be daunting if you're not organized, but if you understand what the fiduciary duties of every single, you know, members of of the board is and yourself, and and, and if you really plan carefully, it, it's okay. I mean, it, it it's part of you know doing business the the right way, which is very important. And is the UK still a good place to do business? I mean, Intertech is a global is a global business. You obviously your your home is here. Is is the UK because obviously there's a lot of fretting about this and a lot of concern about London's role in in the world of finance. For, for you, is it still a good place? To- I mean, for a global company, being based in the UK is perfect in terms of time zone management, in terms of access to talent, and certainly you know in terms of uh, you know getting investment in your company and having the right governance. So. It's a perfect place uh, from, from my perspective. And that's why you have so many, you know, companies based here. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to listen to or read bonus content from this episode, then please sign up to our newsletter, Off to Lunch. There you will find business news and analysis throughout the week. You can sign up at Off to Lunch dot substack dot com <laughs>